Exodus 20, verses 1 through 21. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take, make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You should not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. O oh God in heaven, we pray for your blessing upon our time together. Move and power among us for the salvation of sinners and the strengthening of your church. Would you anoint the hearing and preaching of your word with the Lord Jesus be made much of? And would he be honored in Christ's name? Amen. So we're in the Ten Commandments this morning, and we have been for a while. The Ten Commandments are God's moral law, and is God's moral law. They are the constitution of nature, the very constitution of nature itself. They abide, still in effect, and they are forever in effect because they are the revelation of God's character to us. When we look at the Ten Commandments, I've instructed you every week since we've been in them, I think, that one of their jobs is to drive us to Jesus Christ. So we see the Ten Commandments and we learn of our own sinfulness. And so I hope you leave the services on Sunday more in awe of the grace of God to forgive sinners then you are loathing over your own sin. I want you to come under the conviction of sin. I want you to have a sense of your own unworthiness before God. But most importantly, I want you to have a sense of the grace and mercy that is yours in Jesus Christ for how kind he is to provide the Savior or to be the Savior 
by the shedding of his very own blood. Last week, we looked at the sixth commandment, which is the commandment, you shall not kill. And I looked at that from a number of angles, rooted it in the dignity of man, that every one of us is worthy of dignity and respect because we are created in the divine image. And because we are created in the divine image, God commands people to show respect and dignity to all their fellow human beings. And the commandment, you shall not kill, is not just a commandment to not murder people, but it's within it because if there is a prohibition, then there is also a commandment to do something. If there's a commandment not to do something, there's a commandment to do something. The commandment is not to kill and specifically murder. Um, that's the commandment. But within that is embedded a commandment to love one another and a commandment to uphold human dignity and value human dignity. And so this was, this was emphasized last week as we uh, went through this, and I attempted to draw some application at the end of it. One of the things that I talked about last week was the aspect of capital punishment, specifically for the crime of murder, and why this, or that this is a universal um, expectation that God has of all human societies, and that is that there would be a mandatory capital punishment for those who commit murder. And that's what I'm going to talk about today with one other aspect, and that is the aspect of war. So I want to divide this up into a couple of weeks. We're going to spend a little bit more time on the Sixth Commandment, simply, and you're not surprised by that, I doubt it, but simply because I think these are areas of confusion right now in our broader culture and certainly within the church of the Lord Jesus, is what should a Christian's attitude be towards capital punishment, death penalty, not only war between warring states, but civil war. So what would a Christian's view be towards a civil war, for example? And then beyond that, what is the Christian's view of armed resistance and self-defense? And all of this, I think, is wrapped up within the Sixth Commandment. And then after that, what I want to do is I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about how terrible and ungodly the ideology of pacifism is. And so there's a number within this community, our surrounding community, that are part of the Anabaptist tradition. And I think that the attitude that comes with that tradition towards the use of war and the use of violence for the defense of people is a terrible attitude. I think it's dangerous, I think it's unscriptural, and I think it's ungodly. And so I'm going to spend a, a bit of time next week talking about that. But today I'm going to spend the bulk of my sermon talking about, one, the death penalty, and two, war. Next week I'll talk about civil war, self-defense, and pacifism. And I hope to make it through much of this, and then by the time we're done next week, we'll see if we have another week on the Sixth Commandment. But this is the topic for the next couple of weeks. Now, often when people deal with these matters of discussion, what they try to do is they try to explain 
why they don't contradict the Sixth Commandment. So this will be your typical discussion. So for example, on capital punishment and war, they will say that this is why, so this is how the discussion will go. Capital punishment is scriptural, and this is why it doesn't contradict the Sixth Commandment. Or they'll say, just war is scriptural, and this is why it doesn't contradict the Sixth Commandment. That's typically the way it will go. Such and such is scriptural, and this is why it doesn't contradict the Sixth Commandment. I'm not going to take that route this morning. The route that I am going to take is that the Sixth Commandment demands capital punishment, and the Sixth Commandment demands just war. It is a violation of the Sixth Commandment to not uphold capital punishment, the death penalty for murder. And it is a violation of the Sixth Commandment for a nation not to defend its own citizens, okay, by means of force, which would be war. So I'm not going to give you reasons why death penalty and war don't contradict the Sixth Commandment. I'm going to say the Sixth Commandment demands both of them, both of them. It includes, it includes the death penalty for certain crimes, specifically first-degree murder, and it includes a commandment to wage war in certain situations and use lethal force to repel threats, okay, in contrary to the Anabaptist and Mennonite positions, which I think are unscriptural and frankly ungodly. And I'm going to just start by quoting Matthew Henry on this to kind of give you an idea of where I'm going. Matthew Henry said, he said, it does not, speaking of the Sixth Commandment, it does not forbid killing in lawful war or in our own necessary defense, nor the magistrates putting offenders to death, for those things are the preserving of life. What does the Sixth Commandment tell us to do? It is the commandment to preserve life. And when, an or, and, and when a war is carried out properly, or the law of a nation is used properly, or self-defense is employed properly, it is all employed to obey the sixth commandment, which is the preservation of life. The protection of people, of their right to live, right to live. Do you remember, as I've talked about before, that within the Ten Commandments are embedded our natural human rights. So in various constitutions and governing documents across the world of various countries and states, you'll see constitutions that delineate various rights. Our own does that. And all of those rights are derived from the Ten Commandments, if they're absolute rights. And the basic absolute right is your right to live. And so acts of war and acts of violence, when they are justified by Scripture, what they're doing is they're protecting your right to live. That's what they're doing by repelling threats. So just before I get into this a little further, here's kind of the flow of thought, if if you want to get my flow of thought here. 
When a commandment forbids evil, it demands the opposite good. And I've said this before. I said it at the beginning of the series. When a commandment forbids evil, it demands the opposite good. So the Ten Commandments, Sixth Commandment forbids murder. What does it demand? It demands the opposite good, which is the protection of human life. When a commandment forbids evil, it demands good. Do not murder means preserve and protect human life. And one way to protect human life or love your neighbor, which as Jesus said is the second greatest commandment, is eliminating your neighbor's murderer or would-be murderer, whether it's his fellow citizen or another nation or country. That is one way to protect human life. In fact, it's probably the most effective way to protect human life is eliminate murderers or would-be murderers. Those who have the intent to kill, eliminate them. This is how you protect human life. And then some will come to this and they'll say, well, what about the commandment in the Scriptures to love your enemy? I hope to deal with this maybe a little more next week, but what about that? Is that consistent? And I believe it is. Wholly consistent, and, and here's why. The Bible assumes we have greater and lesser obligations to different people. So I am to have my love. I'm supposed to love everyone. In fact, God loves everyone. But my love expressed to some people is different than my love expressed to other people. So I have... I'll give you, this is a very basic example for, for you men. You have a greater duty to love your wife than everyone else's wife. That should be blatantly obvious. Okay? That should be absolutely blatantly obvious. The closer the individual is to you, the more obligation you have to that individual. I can give you scripture verses, but the Apostle Paul says that the man who doesn't take care of his own household is worse than an infidel. So there's one. I can give you many more. I can even root this in Jesus Christ who has a very special love for his people, the church, and in the Old Testament, ancient Israel. When the nations of the world would strike out against the nation of Israel, what would God do? Send judgment on them. And so you have a greater obligation to love those who are near to you than you do to those who are far from you, relationally speaking. And so this is how you answer the idea of love your enemies. So God says he, he even loves the wicked, but what does he do with the wicked? He causes the sun to shine on them and the rain to fall on them. But what does he also do to the wicked? He sends the avenger after their blood. God loves the church. What does he do for the church? He sends the, sh the sun to shine on the church and the rain to fall on the church. And what else does he do for the church? He sends the Savior to die for them so they don't pay for their own sins. You see there's a difference? God has different expressions of love depending on the people that he's dealing with. And so enough of these simplistic ideas that we need to love all people the same way. 
That's nonsense. It's thoughtlessness. It's folly. That's nowhere found in Scripture. And beyond that, not only are we to love those nearer to us more than we love those far from us or differently than we love those far from us, we are to love the innocent in a different way than we love the guilty. And God is this way also, isn't he? What does he do? He protects the innocent. And we are to love the victims in a different way than we love the victimizers. What does God do? He punishes the victimizers but protects the victims. So in talking about these controversial topics, which really shouldn't be controversial, but they are. Two generations ago, they wouldn't have been. But these controversial topics, we need to do away with these simplistic ideas that we love everybody the same, the same way. It's pure nonsense, and it's ungodly. And I could spend more time discussing this, but I, I'm trying to boil it down to a few principles. One being that we love those nearer to us different than we love those far from us. Another one is, is that we love the innocent different than we love the guilty. Another one is, is that we love the victims of crimes more different than we love the victimizers of, of the victims. So you, you, you have the, the guilty and you have the innocent. How do you love the guilty? Well, you love the guilty by giving them a fair trial and treating them with dignity in their sentencing. And respect as a human being. How do you love the victimized? You care for them in their sorrow and in their pain and in their loss. And you try to protect them from the victimizers. But you have, love is expressed differently to different people. Depending on their relationship to you, depending on their, their role in society, or, and depending upon their status is Innocent or guilty, victim or victimizer. Distinctly. And this is godly. And so that's how you deal with the answer to the question, well, aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Of course we're supposed to love our enemies. And in fact, as we talk about justice and executing criminals and justice and carrying out, for example, warfare or armed defense of people, there has to be a level of restraint why? Out of respect for the enemy. But there must be a greater love for the person who stands behind you in order to protect them from the enemy who stands in front of you. And that's where your greater obligation lies. So enough of that being said, enough of my intro, which was 19 minutes long. <laughs> I want to talk, first of all, I'm going to do two things today. Loving your, loving your neighbor by the death penalty and loving your neighbor with war. Because remember what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm not giving you excuses to violate the Sixth Commandment. What I'm telling you is that these are consistent with the Sixth Commandment when they're done properly. Loving your neighbor with the death penalty. By the death penalty. By the death penalty. Now, God designed the death penalty to teach the sanctity of human life. So that man would know that life is sacred. That's why he designed it. The law is, is useless unless there's consequences for lawbreakers. It's useless. It's just words. I used to work in a place that drove me crazy because the boss had all of these 
signs all over the place. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this. And the, the wall was plastered with all of these things. And essentially, they meant nothing because there was no consequences for violating them. It was just, it was just ink on paper. Useless waste of time. Whereas the law is a few basic rules that have teeth to them. And a law that has no consequences is nothing more than ink splashed on paper. It's a waste of ink and it's a waste of paper. And so the consequences for the law teach us that the law is a very serious thing and especially murder is a terrible thing. It is a breaking out against the image of God. And there's one thing, as John Frame said, there's one thing that all lawbreakers have in common. Every one of them. It's not a lack of education. That's not what all lawbreakers have in common. It's not a lack of wealth. That's not what all lawbreakers have in common. They don't have that in common. It's not a lack of mental health. That's not what they all have in common. Do you know what every lawbreaker has in common? Disrespect for the law. That's it. And what the death penalty does is it creates a respect for the law. Respect for the law. Had a policeman talk to me after last week's service, and he said, there is no respect for the law in this society. And isn't that true? Isn't that true? There's no respect for it. There's no respect for it at all levels, high and low. And what the death penalty does is it brings in a respect for the law. The number of crimes in the Old Testament that have the death penalty as a maximum sentence are many, and I might list them at some point. But when it comes to premeditated murder, the death penalty is not a maximum sentence. It's the only sentence that God authorizes for those who are convicted of premeditated murder. It's not the maximum. There's a number of crimes in the Old Testament that are listed as maximum. But premeditated murder, the only sentence is death. Everything else when it comes to a death sentence in the Old Testament is a maximum penalty. It's the only one. And unlike all of the other crimes listed under the Mosaic legal system, which death penalty can be applied to, the death penalty, the execution for murderers, is prescribed and demanded hundreds of years before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. So this penalty for murder was prescribed by God generations before the giving of the law at Sinai. Way before the giving of the law. It came into effect in Genesis chapter 9. Verse 5 and 6, Noah just got out of the ark. And God gives him a few certain things to do. One of the things in Genesis 9, verse 4, he says, you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Now, some of you read that and you think that means you don't eat a rare steak. That's not what it means. What it, the ancients, some of the ancient 
tribes were so ungodly, what they would do is they would chain up an animal in their backyard, and they didn't have refrigerators, so when they got hungry, they would just chop off a piece of the animal and then fill the flesh wound and then go back for another. When they want dinner tomorrow, they do the same thing. That's what that's talking about. You shouldn't do that. So there's a protection of animal life here that animals shouldn't be tortured and treated so terribly. But then in verse, and that's a universal law because it's in Genesis 9. And then in verse 5, it says, And for your lifeblood, speaking of the lifeblood of man, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So the only sentence for first-degree murder since Noah got out of the ark, and this is a sentence for all of Noah's descendants, which includes every one of us, every nation on the face of the earth, as I explained a few weeks ago when I talked about ethnicity, has descended from Noah. So every society on the face of the earth, God expects of them to execute people who, for, who commit first-degree murder. Only sentence. Way before the law was given at Sinai. Given immediately after the flood and Noah was expected to uphold it. Now, God did not give this law before the flood, which is interesting. So when, when Cain killed Abel, this law was not in effect. The, the idea that all human life is to be treated with dignity was a reality Okay, but it had not been positivized in the demanding of the death penalty. So that's always been a reality, but it wasn't positivized in the demanding of the death penalty until Genesis 9. God did not give this law until Genesis 9, but however, it has been in effect as part of God's covenant with creation since Genesis 9. The removal... Pay attention to this, because this is important as it pertains to our own society, and as you're seeing things unfold in our world right now, especially the Western world, which used to uphold what I'm teaching today and in our own nation. The removal of capital punishment for murder puts us into pre-flood times with the danger of descending into the moral nightmare of Genesis 6, verses 5 through 6. Genesis 6, 5 through 6, this is before the capital punishment was instituted by God. So murders, it wasn't commanded to execute murderers. And what do you get in Genesis 6, verses 5 through 6? You have no regard for the law. Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So what does this do? God wipes out the world with a flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8, right? And why does he wipe out the world in the flood? Because of how bad it had become in Genesis 6. And what is one difference between pre-flood and after-flood as far as the structure of the world? Pre-flood, there's no death penalty. After-flood, there is a death penalty. The death penalty is meant to restrain us from getting to pre-flood levels of depravity. Remove the death penalty and you get the disregard for the law that you had in Genesis 6 that I just read of. 
So that might explain to you our existence at the moment of why the wheels seem to be coming off the trolley car as it's headed downhill. Why was it in this country you used to not even have to lock your doors at night? Children could play freely in parks without adult supervision. All over the country, kids could bike across town, even when I was growing up, without fear. You could ride the city bus, and it was assumed that it would be clean and safe. There was a fear of the law. And the fear of the law comes with the death penalty. That brings in a fear of the law. And the one thing that every single criminal has in common is a disregard for the law. Whereas the death penalty forces a regard for the law. Capital punishment is designed to restrain evil and keep us from getting to the level of depravity that was, that was seen and witnessed in Genesis chapter 6. It is a universal law, as I noted, because it was given to every one of our, us has Noah as our father. It was given to him. And it is the only sentence that is to be given for premeditated murder. It's not, premeditated murder is not, you know, life in prison. That's not what it is. It's, it's not like, oh, you, you know, you do good and maybe you'll get out in parole in 20 years. Premeditated murder, death penalty. It is a universal law. And, the, and when this law is upheld, it creates a love or at least a fear of transgressing the sanctity of human life. Because what it does is it teaches you that every human life is valuable. So if only, if we only executed people guilty of first degree murder, if that's the only class that we executed in the society, it would still teach us that human life is valuable and that would have consequences as it pertains to other crimes. Because every crime is a violation of human dignity. Whether it's property theft, whether it's rape, whether it's assault and battery, whether it's armed robbery, it's a violation of human dignity. And if, if we just had the death penalty, if we just had the death penalty for this one specific area, what it would do is it would teach all of society that humanity has worth and dignity and deserves respect. You remove it, you remove your need to respect your fellow man. Whereas just where we are. And so it is demanded of everyone who commits premeditated murder. And this, as I looked at in Numbers chapter 35 last week, it was upheld in the Mosaic legal system. In the New Testament, it's upheld. So the Apostle Paul acknowledges it, the validity of the death penalty in Acts chapter 25, verse 11, when he was being tried and appeals to Caesar. In Acts 25, 11, the Apostle Paul says, um, as he's dealing with, with the Roman courts here, Festus, he says, if Paul says, if then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, he acknowledges the validity of the death penalty. I do not seek to escape death, but there is nothing to their charges against me. No one can give me up to them. All right? And so the apostle Paul acknowledges, in that instance, the validity of the death penalty. And then the Apostle Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, points to the state's duty to execute criminals in Romans 13. 
verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. The, rule, the government should be an absolute terror to bad conduct. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. What is the job of the state? The job of the state, according to Romans 13, is to carry the sword. What does the sword do? It avenges sin. It, it destroys sinners, especially murderers. And so the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 25 and in Romans 13 acknowledges the validity of the death penalty and the state's job to carry it out in the New Testament time. So don't come to me and say, oh, you're just going Old Testament on me today. As if the Old Testament means nothing to you anyway. Now, the death penalty is to be done properly, executed properly. So the, old, the biblical law is that if there is going to be someone committed of a capital crime, especially first-degree murder, there must be corroborated evidence by two or three witnesses. That's the only way you can convict someone of the death penalty according to biblical law. And the way technology has advanced, I don't think we should include DNA evidence or even video evidence in that. It should only be two or three witnesses. With the advent of AI, I think that video evidence is going to become more and more difficult to use and easier to frame someone with. And with the corruption of people in high places, I wonder how easy it would be to frame someone by planting DNA evidence, especially with the number of people who have donated blood. And so I don't think these pieces of evidence should be included in convicting someone of first-degree murder as it pertains to deserving of the death penalty. It might be used as circumstantial evidence in a trial, but if you want to get the death penalty, you should have to have two or three witnesses that corroborate. That's the only way. And the trial, if there's going to be a capital... Punishment inflicted upon someone in all criminal trials should occur within days. Days. Not years, days. Justice delayed is justice denied. Days. And then the execution should be carried out immediately so that the people, as they look on as to what's happening in this case, can make a direct connection between murder and the swift execution of murderers in their minds, in their hearts. These are all scriptural principles. And you say, well, what if the murderer receives the gospel before he's executed? Well, I actually think in a just and righteous society, what they should do is they should get a minister to go and speak with the murderer before he's executed and offer him the gospel. So that he has the opportunity to repent. And if he does repent, then I guess he'll be in heaven in a few minutes. Because it's still the state's job to execute him. Regardless of whether he believes in Jesus Christ. The state's job is to carry out the execution and uphold the law. And the law is an inflexible standard. 
regardless of whether someone believes in Christ or not. And I don't think we've ever had death sentences or executions done properly in this country, at least. But we did have capital punishment until 1976 in this country. My understanding is the last execution that took place in this country was in the Don Jail in Toronto. Someone was hanged. And this was part of the problem with the death penalty in this country. It wasn't public. It was private. So the last few criminals that were executed in Canada were executed behind closed doors, behind a wall somewhere so that it was private and sanitary. But the way the scriptures portray it in the Old Testament especially is that execution should be taken out publicly. And within our ancient traditions in this in the Western world, those who were executed were actually given the opportunity to address the public before they were executed. And I think that's a great thing because it prevents mishaps of justice and the abuse of the death penalty, especially if he's a political criminal. And he can offer his own defense to the public at that point. But it should be public if you look at how they were carried out in the Bible. It was a public execution. And this, what it does is it sends a message to the public that human life is to be treated with dignity and respected. And that's what we do with murderers around here. And I don't think we've ever had them done properly, it was, but it was abolished in 1976. You can look up who the prime minister was at that time. I doubt you'll be surprised. <laughs> and we as a nation and our government will be in sin until it's reinstated. And we repent of that. As Abraham Kuyper said, he was a Dutch theologian and the prime minister of Holland at one point in time. Premeditated murder has therefore always and inexorably had to be punished. We do not hesitate to say this with the death of him who shed the blood. The death penalty intensifies, or what it does is it satisfies justice, it prevents repeat offenses, and it upholds human dignity and it acts as a deterrent. Our present system of imprisonment is unscriptural and unjust. There are several punishments that are permitted and commanded under Old Testament law. And here they are. None of them include imprisonment. Public beatings, restitution, enslavement, and death. Those are the punishments. Prison, as it is practiced presently, is essentially enslavement without allowing the prisoner the dignity of work. And so what I'm submitting to you today is that enslavement gives more dignity to the convict than imprisonment does. Because imprisonment is enslavement without allowing him the dignity of work. And it is extorting money from the victims of the criminal to pay for his existence while he contributes nothing in a cell as we finance his imprisonment, his food, his medical care, his sleep, his time on TV and in front of video games, being re rehabilitated while he lifts weights several times a day as we finance that with our own tax dollars. And he contributes nothing. Nothing. There is no prison system under Old Testament law. There was a prison system in Egypt and Philistia and Assyria and Babylon, but not Israel. The prison system is pagan and, it's, and it is enslavement without the dignity of work, and it is a burden on society. Scripturally, capital punishment 
authorized as a maximum sentence for dozens of crimes, as I've said, but first-degree murder is the only crime for which it is mandated. Now, you, you deal with all the arguments against capital punishment and so on, but I, I, don't, I think we should just say, you know what, if we believe in Scripture, we're okay with the Scriptures. We can just operate by faith and trust the Scriptures. But one of the arguments is that it's not really a deterrent because people still commit murders. Well, some have argued that. Well, if, if killing people is not a deterrent, then why does the mafia kill people? Right? Because it's a deterrent. The problem with capital punishment is it has been practiced in the West for, I don't know, maybe 100 years, is that there's no public connection between the crime and the criminal and the execution. So that it's delayed by years. Like in the United States, it's still practiced in some states. But people could sit on death row for decades. And then the execution is private behind closed doors. Whereas if it is immediate, if there's an immediate trial, an immediate conviction after the trial, then an immediate carrying out of it, and it's public, then it's all done before the public eyes, and then not only will it be a deterrent to society, but it, will, it, will, it is the sure way to prevent repeat offenders. The sure way. And so, that's what I have to say about that. Capital punishment. And this is a very important topic that should be discussed and should be considered. And our society is in deep sin until we start practicing it again properly. And I'm going to move on to talk about war in a minute here. And I want to note that when it comes to the use of the law, I hope you see what's going on as I talk about punishment for criminals and and so on. What is the government doing with the law? It's in a constant state of war. The law authorizes the government to be in a constant wartime footing. When it comes to criminal law, it's war against its criminal class. So whatever the government has authorized the police force to investigate and arrest people for and authorized the courts to punish people for, that is what the government's declared war on. So it's in a, it, when the government uses the sword, it's an act of war. And, and what I'm advocating for here is, is war on the criminal class. Right? So we have war on all kinds of silly offenses in this country. Right? If you, I mean, you, 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 can, you can produce marijuana. Right? But, but man, you get in big trouble if you produce raw milk. War, the, the, the great war on drugs has been lost, but the war on raw milk continues. Okay? I'm just trying to highlight that as some of the stupidity that we have to deal with in this country. All right? And then, and then beyond that, you know, they, this country has a, a, a war on certain types of light bulbs. You can't produce certain... Thomas Edison's light bulb would be outlawed in this country. Right? Or the war on incorrect building codes. The, the wars go on and they go on and they go on in this land. 
But really, if the law is to be used effectively and properly, it is a war on the criminal class. And it's to root out criminals and punish them. And in the case of murder, to execute them. And so when you talk about just war, as I talk about just war, all is we're doing is we're taking that principle of using the law as a tool of war on the criminal class in a society, and then you're applying it to the relationship between countries. So the very fact that there is a legal system means that you believe in war. Then you just take the principle and you apply it to a higher level, but the relationship between states. And so here's my next point, loving your neighbor by war. God expects the government to lead their nations into war to defend the rights of their people. Abraham raised a militia in Genesis 14. God commanded Israel to go to war on several occasions. Jesus ministered to Roman soldiers and never told them to leave their profession as soldiers. And Cornelius was a Roman soldier of the Italian cohort who Acts 10 verses 1 to 2 tells us feared God. He was a soldier who feared God. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, you pacifists, you. Okay? The Bible upholds peacetime as a blessing, but it never condemns all acts of war as inherent evils, or even condemns them as necessary evils. War is not, when it is executed properly, is not a necessary evil. Now, it's horrible and it's horrifying and we shouldn't desire war. We should not look forward to war. We should not fantasize about war. It's a terrible thing. Anyone who goes to war would tell you it's a terrible thing. But it's not a necessary evil. When it is utilized scripturally and properly, it is a necessary good. And so Christians, beginning with St. Augustine, have articulated principles derived from Scripture that should govern warfare to ensure that acts of war remain within the bounds of the command to love your neighbor. And I'm just going to list these principles. You'll be able, you should be able to see how they connect with um, scriptural commandments as I list them. But there's two, there's two categories of principles. One is the rules for going to war, and the other is the rules for engaging in war. Rules of going to war and rules of engagement. And D.A. Carson lists them in his book, Love in Hard Places, and I'm just going to repeat what he says because the way he put it is so good. And here they are. Rules for going to war. Number one, the only just cause for going to war is defense against violent aggression. So this, this, this means that the expansion of various empires, for example, Alexander the Great or the Roman Empire and using Using war as a means to conquer peoples is not just. It's unjust. Just war is a defensive posture against enemies, people who are trying to threaten you. Number two, the only just intention is to restore a just peace. Just, that is, to friend and foe alike. The desire of war is to put an end to war and to find a just peace between nations. Number three, military force must be the last resort after negotiations and other activities Efforts, example, mediation, have been tried and have failed. So there should be an attempt, there should be an escalation that goes, and many things should be tried before nations engage in armed conflict. Number four, 
Number four, rules for going to war. The final one is the decision to engage in such a just war must be made by the highest governmental authority. We'll look at that next week when I look at civil war. But that fourth one's important to consider as we look at civil war next week. So those are the rules for going to war. How about the rules for engaging in war, the rules of engagement? Well, these are all derived from Scripture too. The war must be for limited ends, i.e. to repel aggression and redress injustice. That's the purpose of it. Number two, the means of a just war must be limited by proportionality to the offense. Meaning that if it's a small offense, it's a small, it's a small act of aggression. If it's a great offense, it's a great act of aggression. So there must be a proportionality in the use of violence. This is the same, the same rules that would apply to self-defense, right? There must be no intentional and direct attack on non-combatants. It doesn't mean there can't be an attack on non-combatants. It must mean that there's no intentional one, right? Number four, war should not be prolonged where there is no reasonable hope of success within these limits. So sometimes the right thing to do for a nation is just stop the war because there's no way of winning. And this limits the reasons for war and the conduct of war so that we can be, so that the state can be the executors of justice and protect their citizens, which is an act of love for neighbor. If you have a state that is refusing to go to war under all circumstances, it is a state that is inviting invasion and the destruction of their people. In fact, the act of war should be seen when it is done this way as an act of love for your neighbor. So, for example, one writer, Daryl Cole, said, The Christian who fails to use force to aid his neighbor when prudence dictates that force is the best way to render that aid is an uncharitable Christian. It's not loving. God restrains evil by force, and, and war restrains evil by force. Just war restrains evil by force. And by the way, just as a little caveat, just as a way of a little caveat as I wrap this point up, is the draft, the military draft is immoral. It's immoral. Okay? There is such a thing as a just war, and this God expects the state to go to war, but forcing people to go to war is kidnapping them. It's a, it, here's the thing. If your people are convinced of the valor and honor of the war effort, they will volunteer their sons because they know that their livelihood surrounds, or their, their life and their nation survival depends upon the effort. But under our present regime, I wouldn't want my son to be drafted, and I would encourage you to be draft dodgers if there ever was a draft. Unless you see enemy combatants running around in the street, I want nothing to do with wars under this present regime. Whoever is running this country right now, I don't care what party it is, there is not a, enough level of moral integrity in high places to trust them with the lives of your children. But if I saw there was an immediate threat, my mind might change. But the draft is immoral. So what have I done here? As we've looked at capital punishment and war, the Sixth Commandment doesn't prohibit killing in total, but rather it prohibits murder. And while prohibiting murder, the Sixth Commandment protects human life and the use of war and the use of the capital punishment and the use of the law is designed to what? 
uphold the dignity of human life. One way to protect human life and love your neighbor is eliminating your neighbor's murderers or would-be murderers. We have a greater obligation to those who are nearer to us than those who are far from us. God is the same way towards his church. We have a greater obligation to victims and victimizers. God is this way. We have a greater obligation to the innocent than to the guilty. God is this way. The use of force can be justified and is even demanded to punish the wicked and protect the innocent. So all of what I've said is not to excuse violations of the Sixth Commandment. It's to say the Sixth Commandment necessitates the upholding of the capital punishment and the upholding of war and just for just causes. It necessitates it. So the police officer, when he's going out to get the bad guys, he's doing a good job. He's actually an instrument of law, not politics. What we saw during the COVID times especially was what? The government, the police officers became instruments of not law, but politics. There's a difference, right? One is immoral, the other is righteous. It's unrighteous for the police officer to be a political instrument and tool. It's godly for the police officer to be a force of the law. And the same with soldiers. And so... God uses the state to do the work of righteousness by what? By destroying the body of Antichrist. This is something I've taught. That's the only thing the state's authorized to use the sword for, is to destroy the physical manifestation of evil. And, and you say, well, uh, we need to destroy evil. And well, evil isn't some abstract concept that floats around out here in the netherworld. Evil embodies itself in real people and real institutions. And the, and the sword of the state is designed by God to destroy those people and those institutions in whom evil manifests itself. That's what it's there for. And it is an act of love. One of the greatest things about heaven is there'll be no murderers in heaven. And so when the state uses its sword properly, it's bringing heaven to earth. Because it's eliminating murderers from the face of the earth. And this is the state's job. God uses the state to protect the innocent and to punish the wicked. And so when the state operates this way, it is a godly establishment and it is a Christ-like way to operate because in the end, this is what Jesus is going to do when he returns. What's he going to do? He's going to bring the sword and he's going to destroy those who oppose him. And this is specifically what God has designed the state for, to use the sword and destroy those, destroy those, especially destroy those who are seeking to destroy the image of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray to you and we pray for your blessing upon us. We pray you would use us for your honor and glory today. And we pray, O oh God in heaven, that you would do a wonderful work in each one of our hearts and you would teach us, you would teach us to please, dear God, uphold your law in our lives. Would your law be upheld in our hearts, in our homes, and in our nation, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.